I shall have to go. Mm. And I won't have any lunch. It was, it was actually a, a, it was a brilliantly made movie, the, the Devils, I thought, but it was very strong stuff, wasn't it? It was even I stronger mean, working on it. I think that um, both Russell and I haven't properly recovered from the experience. <laughs> but no, we, but we had, it, was, it, was, it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, you see the film, it lasts an hour and 30 minutes, but we were on it for four months. And you ever tried to be burned for four months? And they built this big bonfire at Pinewood on the lot, and they thought of everything. They built a, a cathedral that looked like a lavatory, and there were lots of people in black hats and flowers and lots of flames, and I had a button which I could press if it got too hot. And they'd shaved my head, and they'd tied me up, and I had an escape hatch and a man with a plastic mask on and asbestos. Why am I telling this story? Because oh, the wind direction uh, changed. Uh, and yeah. Russell came along, and he kept on throwing petrol on it. And when I was actually really burning to death, the, the, the special effects man said, we can't, he's really burning to death. He said, damn him, damn him, damn him. <laughs> <laughs> so I must go and see it. Yeah, that's right, it was. But, but if, you, if you're like me, you won't be able to bear the last few minutes well, that this, he's talking about, because yes, I couldn't, I, I averted my eye. This I'm, is obviously where my young friend was sick, in the middle. Yeah, mm, yeah, mm. right. But again, it goes back to what Lady Barnett was saying to make his plane earlier. I mean, what is the effect, you think, Oliver, of, of this kind of, of scene, this sort of violence that there is in movies nowadays, on an audience. Do you think I, yeah, I'm still being paid for that film. Neither Ken Russell or I got paid any money for that film. We got our expenses. We made that film because we thought that it was a proper time. And in the light of, of maybe the, the troubles in Ulster now, it, it was a proper time for that film to be made. Mm. We weren't trying to afford anybody proper niceties, any proper little entertainments, little asides before tea. We were showing them the bigotry that goes on or that humanity is capable of, and that is all we were doing. If they didn't like to stomach it, it's because nobody, and for once they said, well, we don't like bigotry, for once they said it. Mm. But you can, but you, you know, you can, you can, you can make a, an, a case, I think, a very strong case, Oliver, to say that that certainly was a central message running through the film, and that's what I understood it to be. But you can make a case it became a very big financial success because of other reasons because of the fact that all those nuns took their clothes off, because of the violence in it and the cruelty in it. Strangely enough, it, did, it wasn't a, a financial success in the country one would expect it to be, in the United States of America. Um, and that is the big market. It represents about 62% of the whole world gross. It's an enormous market. It wasn't a success there. When usually if films are going to be a success, they've got to go well in America. And perhaps you know, the problem with our market is, is that we don't think enough about that. We make films for the domestic market. Mm -hmm we make on the buses or carry on up your Khyber or whatever it might be. <laughs> and I think, I think that's fine for the domestic market. It doesn't make good movies. But our film was not a financial success there. It was, it was successful in Europe, and it was successful in Italy and in France and in Germany and maybe in Japan because of its erotic content. But it was, it was more successful in Europe because I happen to believe that they were closer to the problem. Mm. I don't think, I think you have different ethnic problems in America with a, you know, with a Negro. Can you, can you solve in one movie, not having seen it, I'm commenting No, you can't. Ignorance. You can attempt, though. You can attempt, because to me the terrifying thing when Northern Ireland broke out was that I'd just been reading Mary Queen of Scots by Antonio Fraser, mm -hmm. and one had thought, thank God, 400 years have rolled by and we have learned, and then suddenly, but exactly the same thing was happening in Northern Ireland. Mm. They weren't actually being burnt at the stake, but a, an incendiary bomb with a hook on it is going to burn you just as nastily as you nearly were. Mm. Can you, in one film, do what 400 years has failed? No, you can't. Neither could that vicar who... But you are trying. Yes, neither did the vicar who dragged the wooden cross through Belfast do anything. But, I mean, what we were trying to do was, was to point in some direction, and all of us, you know, and I, I'm an agnostic, but pray to whoever it might be, 
that, you know, it starts. And I think that if we make a movie that is horrific enough and, and, is, and, and the property of the movie is the basis of, of, of different groups, different factions, religious factions or whatever they might be, fighting each other. I mean, how many times have armies fought under the banner of Christianity and how many lives have been destroyed? I mean, let's not have it again, please. Hello everyone, welcome to Struggle Session. I am your host, Leslie Lee III. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for subscribing at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com. Getting those bonus episodes, getting our Alan Moore series. This episode would normally be a bonus episode, but I want everyone to hear this one because I have an amazing guest. I, I had to give Jack this episode off because it's a bit spooky it's a bit scary and he scares easy because we're talking horror with gretchen felker martin horror author amazing film critic and the author of the new novel that everyone is talking about it comes out on 2 manhunt i've been reading it and i've been absolutely blown away so far so cool so creepy so scary so Gretchen, please tell me about Manhunt. So Manhunt is my upcoming debut novel, and it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where a virus has transformed anyone with enough testosterone in their system into a ravenous cannibal rapist. And it follows a group of trans women who hunt these things and process unrefined estrogen out of their balls and other organ scrapings. Oh my God. <laughs> Ever since I read, read the, when you were first talking about the book on Twitter, I was like, oh my God, I cannot wait uh, to read this. And you were nice enough to give me an early copy. If the, Folks, if you if that doesn't get you hooked in, I don't know what you're listening to Struggle Session for. That's the type of shit I like to read where it's like, you, the first of all, the premise is so like, interesting just like the monster ideas that you have like the but because you they're not just zombies all right you didn't go that route you had to fuck us right. up even more like it, you didn't take <laughs> it easy on us they're like they grow cancerous cells that have fucking teeth why why gretchen why did you have to make it even grosser i mean that's like you're getting down to the bedrock of who is gretchen at that point i i, I you show me anything i'll try and make it grosser I grew up on Cronenberg and Stephen King and Clive Barker. Like, whatever part of my brain is supposed to not want that is irrevocably broken. Yeah, this book is kind of like uh, Cormac McCarthy meets David Cronenberg. With, oh, that's everything I could ever want to hear. <laughs> like, it is so fun and interesting, and but just very, very dark. Like, a very, very, there's no, there's not a lot of hope punk uh, in this <laughs> world, uh, in general, and tell tell us a little bit more about the story and the characters, and especially the villains. Let's talk about the turfs. Yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, so, Manhunt centers on a small group of trans people, Beth, Fran, Robbie, and Indy, um, who are just trying to scrape by and survive in this fractured post-apocalyptic society. 
then the other perspective character is Ramona, who is a rapidly rising officer in the ranks of a turf paramilitary organization. That's trans-exclusionary radical feminists, for those not in the know. Um, And as the novel begins, the TERFs are expanding north from Maryland and attempting sort of a gradual takeover of the East Coast. And first of all, it it was really unpleasant to spend so much time trying to empathize with TERFs so that I could write them in a way that wouldn't be boring. Um, And I think that if anything, I was way too generous to them and made them (laughs) out to be far too human because real TERFs are just like locusts. There's nothing behind the eyes at all. Yeah. Like you, like if you roll them in a story, like it wouldn't make sense. Like a Graham Linehan, if you like put that in a, in a fictional story, like no, like a man lost his marriage from post from being so mad about trans women and posting about it. No one would believe that. Right. It, It just doesn't, it doesn't play in fiction. You, you really, I mean, you know, it's stranger than fiction is a, a whole whole ass cliche by now, but there's really so much normal, ordinary stuff that you cannot put in a book. Yeah. So this book, it's about these trans women who are surviving this plague that, you know, turns you into this, uh, horrendous monster. If your testosterone levels reach a certain level and it's like, it's a really heartbreak, a breaking story. Cause, um, I believe it is Beth who was about to uh, have her, her surgery. Was it Beth? Uh, right when it was about to have happened. It was Fran. Fran. And she was about to, about to have her surgery right when it's supposed to happen. And she realized if she did, she wouldn't have been on her, uh, she wouldn't have been on our hormones and she would have turned into, uh, yeah. be just like it puts these characters in such this you know kind of bleak situation where they have to literally survive by f- hunting uh these you know ravenous men cutting their balls off and eating them which is not eating testicles not a pleasant experience i would imagine but no, it, they need it desperate desperately to survive it's such a desperate you know situation how did you even like come up with the, like just something that's just pushing well actually no it's it's a silly question to ask really because you can't if you're actually trying to write some real shit you're gonna push things to the edge like why do you as a writer go there where you've gotten a lot of pushback from going here from go pushing things to the edge from telling a story from a trans perspective that you know not hopeful or bright or shiny that is very you know aggressive and nasty and uh, and put and really you got a lot of criticism for putting fictional trans women in such a bad situation which seems so bizarre to me yeah i mean it's like it's like the people who are pushing back on these things do not live in the world that I live in. Yes. Where the same year that I came out, I think I knew three trans women who killed themselves. You know, this is, this is not a kind world for us. It's not merciful. There aren't many good options for how we spend our lives. When I first came up with the concept for this book, I had just just gotten out of like a dirt poor stretch of my life. I mean, I, you know, I grew up without a lot of money and then I spent like 10 years in total stealing to eat poverty. Um, I did a couple of years of sex work just to pay bills. Um, 
And it was hard. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's extremely hard. It does not make you a better person. It does not improve your your perspective automatically or give you some kind of moral edge in the world. It's miserable. It's miserable to be hated by strangers and locked out of respectable work. And I wanted to get that across. And it's, you know, it's it's within this heightened fiction, but to me, that's very much how a lot of trans women, especially of my generation, have lived, you know, thrown out like garbage by their families and denied any kind of dignity in life. But the question a lot of people have then is, well, then why write horror? Why write something so nasty and brutal if you're living in a world that's so brutal? To me, that question doesn't make any sense. And I think we come up from a similar perspective where, you know, diving into this the horrors in fiction helps us process the horrors in real life. Absolutely. I mean, what I always say when I'm asked something like that is like, do you know any doctors who just cover the wound? Like, you have to get in there before you can do anything about it. And I think that expanding our frame of reference to include what it's like to live as a trans woman can be really healing and instructive for a lot of people. And not that this book is intended as like, primarily or even even significantly social instruction or like a, a manual on how to behave. But I do think that it offers an insight into a certain kind of pain. And I think that there's inherent value in feeling someone else's pain. And where can people find Manhunt? Manhunt is coming out on the 22nd of this month. That's 2-22-22. And it will be available wherever you can buy books. Uh, there's a pre-order link up now through my publisher, Macmillan. I'm just super fucking excited for people to get their claws into it. Fans of what should check out Manhunt? You know, the thing that always comes to mind, first, if you like the screwfly solution. Oh, yeah. Uh, like famous gender plague story. Oh, God, that's so good. You Such should a great check this. That's an amazing story. Um, what did you Alice think about Shabu? the Outer Limits uh, episode? I think it was. I, that... You know, I haven't actually seen it. It's it's pretty decent. It's pretty very low budget, you know, but it's pretty yeah, decent. Yeah, yeah. But I love that kind of stuff. I should really check it out. Um, and then the other point of comparison I use, and this is this is a straight zombie story, but it's very very good. Twenty eight days later, which also really really digs mm. into how gender is performed and valued. I I that was one that was like one of the DVDs I watched like the most. I've probably watched it like fucking ten times. That, uh, that yeah, film. same. I loved that movie when it came out. I still love it. Yeah, yeah, great movie. So let's talk a bit about movies, because Gretchen, you are my guiding light in film. Like every movie, ah! I feel like we have very overlapping taste, and your uh, criticism page, and and where where your where your Patreon is, where you post most of your criticism. Where uh, where can people find that? Uh, so I'm on Patreon under my own name, Gretchen Felker Martin. If you Google it, that should come up, or there's a link in my Twitter profile. I'm at scumbelievable on Twitter. And first of all, I'm so flattered that you you think enough of my criticism to bring it up. I love movies. I love writing about them. I've been fortunate enough to carve out a little bit of space for myself to do it for a career. And we definitely have a ton of overlap in the kind of things that we're looking for and that we value. So I, first, I want to bring up a movie that you put me on that I heard about, but I hadn't sat down to watch it. 
uh, until you recommended it, The Devils. Yes, my favorite movie of all time. And this movie is I first of all it was impossible to see at some points because it was it was like a banned film it's by uh, Ken Russell and it was banned in the UK multiple times it was difficult to find like a extant copy there was pieces missing and like it would come on streaming and then would go off but well, Gretchen you sold me on this movie because you kept talking about how great it was what what is De- the devils so The Devils is a, an extreme fictionalization of the true story of the trial and execution of Father Urban Grandier, um, who was a French priest in, uh, I, I want to say it's the 1500s, might be a little, a little later. Um, and it's by Ken Russell, so it's, it's this incredible camp production where, you know, the the king of France is in a, a metal Aphrodite bikini coming out of a sequin encrusted shell, and uh, Cardinal Richelieu is getting moved around on a little walking frame by his his pet nuns. And I mean, you you never ever could predict what you're going to see in the next scene of this movie. There's literally a part where a pair of chemists are attaching heated bottles to a plague victim's body so that the wasps inside them will get agitated and sting her. Like, and they show the whole thing. It's so fucking disgusting and crazy. Oh, it's such a wild movie. But what struck me so much about seeing this movie is like, it's a de- it, it, it was banned for, you know, the sexual content uh, mixed with, you know, the religious iconography and the violence. Right. But when you watch the film, it's like a, deeply moral movie like yes. it has a very a very beautiful moral message in fact like i think yeah. it like is a movie that like everyone should watch because it's just about like the nature of like love and caring about other people absolutely and it was you know it was made by ken russell at a time when he was a devout catholic and he was really in in conflict and internally and with the church about the the way that it conducted itself in the world, which obviously he had good cause to be. Yes. But I think it's a profoundly religious movie, and I think that it comes from a place of deep love and deep, deep sympathy for people whose lives are constricted by nonsensical religious laws and for people who live with repression and censure. I mean, I don't know how you could watch that and see the depth of emotion that he allows sister Jean, who is a uh, a disabled nun from the period who has a hunchback and is sexually obsessed with father Grandier and starts this campaign of misinformation against him out of that frustration. But he affords her so much dignity as a person and he's so sympathetic to her suffering and I just I don't see how you could look at that movie and say that it that it's nihilistic or that it has no values or that it it wants people to behave badly. No, no, like and Oliver Reed's performance, like you, like I've seen, I know him from uh, The Brood, David Cronenberg's The Brood. Oh, oh and... man, the opening of The Brood is so hot. 
<laughs> it's so oh my god I, we i that's one of my favorite favorite movies I, I love it i love it so goddamn much um it's incredible but, but he's a he's 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 a villain in that movie but then he ends up being really sympathetic and in this movie you think he's kind of maybe just this lecherous priest and who's taking advantage but then you end up by the end like seeing like oh no this guy is like literally jesus christ himself yeah yeah, he's he's a beautiful man in many ways. Yeah, absolutely love the devils. Another film I want to talk to you about, film series, Gretchen, Hellraiser. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I one of my favorites since I was like literally five. I would be like sneaking looks because my brother would rent and my dad would rent the Hellraiser movies, and I've been fascinated by them ever uh since and when i finally got to watch them you know of age where i understood it like i actually fell in love with it more like it was even cooler than you know those scenes that i imagined over and over again yeah absolutely it's like so i didn't watch the movies until i was i think in my mid-20s but i had read the the short story the novella the hellbound heart as a kid and loved it and when I finally got to the movies, it was through my my good friend, Julia Graffer, who I, I think you know. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes. Yes. Wonderful artist. Incredible. Really my favorite. Um, but those movies blew my mind. Like that there could be this kind of trashy but gorgeous effects heavy horror movies that are predicated on like this dramatization of gay people coming into your life and revealing <laughs> your sexuality to you. Like it's amazing. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a fun movie. And um, I love, I, there's a pretty good documentary on it. Uh, I think some call, call it something like unto Leviathan, something like that. It's on oh, Shudder. Yeah, I've heard about that. I really want to watch it. Yeah. It's really good. And they just break it down. It's like, what we're doing is not horror. It's a romance and is, you know, a queer romance. And it's a very interesting um pers uh, perspective and story and i absolutely love the first two i'm not sure about the third one but i actually liked the space one as well <laughs> just as because the I later ones are are fun yeah i like the anthology elements even though there was a really low budget one that mostly took place in like the suburbs right like a house in the suburbs oh, or like yeah. a mcmansion and even that it was so earnestly done and written. I ended up falling in love with it. I think it may be like Hellraiser 8. Like by the end of, and like had the fake, have fake pinhead. And, but by right. the end of this, I was like, man, that was actually like those, they actually tried to make a good. They really went uh, for it. They really went for it. The, I think the comics are pretty good um, as well. I've, I've maybe read six issues of them. Did you ever check, did you check out the sequel novel, Scarlet Gospels? I did. I, you know, I was really disappointed with it. Oh, really? See, I, I feel like a lot of, if you're looking for horror, it's not, it's not a horror book. It's like Final Fantasy. <laughs> it's like a Final yeah, Fantasy. it really is. It's like, like a big Seth, like Pinhead is like, you know, Sephiroth and he goes, no, Pinhead is Cloud and he like goes to fight Sephiroth who is Satan. And that's basically it. It's, I find, found it interesting, as you know, this sprawling fantasy. And I like that the, there was like an end to this character that mm -hmm. you would expect not to end to just come kind of always go on i kind of like that element of it but it is like really no connection to the hellraiser universe 
Yeah, I mean, I I really liked that sprawling fantasy aspect of it, too. Um, I love the way that Clive Barker envisions hell. It's so exciting. It's so messy and huge and, like, bottomless. Like, you could never completely comprehend what he's talking about, and I think that's a great quality. And Pinhead's, you know, spoiler alert, Pinhead's death scene is really, really great. Um, what really bummed me out was that right in the middle, there's just this like viciously transphobic caricature, um, where they introduce this, this trans woman who is like a, a traitor and gets killed. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. And there's, yeah, there's some, and there's, I remember also the, the cop who casually rapes a sex work, underage sex worker and like play for, yeah, very much written, uh, for the seventies at the, I mean, as far as even like, you wouldn't even find like older, that pretty horrific stuff, uh, in it, yeah, like very dated, like, horrifically dated stuff. It is. And it's, it's not that I think those are things you can't write. Not not by any means, obviously. There are things you could compare them to in my own work. But with nothing else, really, in his recent body of work to hold it up against, it, it was really disappointing. I mean, I'm I'm a horror fan of, like, the, the guys from the 80s, you know, King and Barker at all. So I'm used to reading books that, like, really nakedly hate who I am as a, as a physical human being. But it's just a bummer. Yeah, like you can do better than those. And it was just like both of those were like really tropes. They were just really lazy it's tropes. Cheap. Yeah, it was it was cheap. It's cheap either like, way, you know. Love you, Clive, but come on. Yeah, do better. All right. So in, what other. So we've been talking. We, we've been talking about movies a bit. Let's get back to the books and this kind of weird ongoing controversy about whether you can write bad things in fiction i still don't quite know where it's coming from i feel like it's mostly coming from a sort sort of tumblr ya spear of reading which doesn't even like seem that interested in horror in the first place i think that's like that's the issue i mean not to to take it back to an age-old discourse but I remember when things started to really go south with the discourse around Game of Thrones, with the quality of the way that people were able to critique it, because it's a critiquable show. It's not perfect. There are many things that you can talk about it, uh, that you can you can pick apart about it, although I happen to like it a lot. Um, but essentially what I think happened is that a bunch of people who don't actually care about fantasy and aren't familiar with its history as a genre or with what Martin is doing to deconstruct it got into the show just because it was so massively popular. And all of a sudden you have all these people who are completely unequipped to talk about a complex topic shooting off. And like, you know, that's art. When things blow up, inevitably a bunch of idiots get a hold of it and you can't really prepare for that or do much about it but boy is it irritating <laughs> yeah they keep they're mad at uh george i borrowed george not for not finishing the books but for having bad things happen to the characters in the maddening. book maddening Which why, is why a- would you want to read a book if nothing bad could happen like 
the the whole point is to to experience something that you hadn't experienced before you picked up the book. I'm always trying to figure out like what do they actually want, you know, a horror story to be? Do you just right. want murder off the table, sexual assault off the table? I mean, a lot of my favorite uh, favorite horror deals directly with, you know, people who suffered sexual abuse and like this is a key element of horror like this is just a key element of what horror is about and a, a key element of all fiction and story telling and this idea that you can kind of excise these things or even worse that when you put these things in your story you have to as an author justify it by revealing your own trauma or background or identity <laughs> this is something that, that that's i think specifically started with YA and now has kind of yeah. moved on to other fiction and it's just like so bizarre to me and, and completely untenable in any real way like you just that's not how writing is or works no what it really is is an excuse to harass people you know yeah. it's a it's a a premise for a fight because i think so many of these people love to cast themselves as martyrs and love to be offended and love to use that as cover to just hammer on anyone they don't like, especially if that artist happens to be marginalized themselves. Yeah. It seems like anytime these backlashes happen, it's you, you like if it's hap like if, uh, if Chuck wind, if a bunch of people get mad at Chuck Windig, right? Like nothing's right. going to happen to him. He's no. like wealthy white, connected it does it literally doesn't matter right. but you know if a new trans artist uh gets you know a bunch of shit they can be driven away from the industry because they have no support otherwise even if you genuinely think whatever grief whatever they did was wrong they're going to be disproportionately affected yep. by whatever but whatever you know justice you're trying to see the punishment will in no way fit the crime. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone uh, gets a chance to uh, to check out your book, Manhunt. But I also know you're working on a follow book. Can you tell us anything about the next one? I can. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on, Leslie. This has been a blast. Love to just talk about movies and books with you. Um, my next novel is titled The Cuckoo, like the bird. And it is about a group of queer teens who are sent to a conversion therapy camp in Utah in the 1990s. And once they get there, they discover that something at the camp is creating copies of the children who are sent there and sending those copies back home to their parents. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. That sounds tight. That sounds tight. I cannot wait. Folks, I'm very excited to get it out. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, oh, what a beautiful cat you have. Uh, what's their name? Oh, this is Lenny. He's a very good boy. Hey, Lenny. How's it going? Folks, that was Struggle Session. Have a good one. Playing us out, here's Rat Fucker with Fist of the North Shore. Peace. This town is one of the few places left. You can eat what you grow. It's the only place for thousands of miles around where the soil is fertile enough to grow crops and the water is pure enough to drink. The poisoned winds which wind around the world pass over the graveyards that were once called cities and then move on to contaminate the rest of the earth. Unless nature can heal her own wounds, there's no way to stop it. And if you
Eventually, it will all be gone. The plants, the animals, the people, the cities. Not a trace of life. Nothing but a dead and barren ball of rock spinning through space. Like what you hear, want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.